welcome to the business of family. I'm your host, Mike Boyd, and this is my look into the world of multi-generational wealth creation, family enterprise, stewardship, family office investing, and the curation of a legacy. On the podcast, I interview members of some of the world's most interesting families to hear how they pass knowledge, resources, values, and wealth to the next generation. I hope you'll enjoy sharing this learning journey with me and would greatly appreciate any feedback, resources, or referrals you have to offer. To sign up to my weekly Business of Family newsletter, go to newsletter.mikeboyd.com.au. George Isaac's grandfather founded the first Isaac family business in 1899 in Bryan, Ohio beginning a long history of serial entrepreneurship and the subsequent creation of several successful enterprises. A lot has changed since then, but the Isaac Group continues to thrive, now under board oversight and management by its third and fourth generations. George grew up as a child of family business owners and has run several Isaac multi-generational family businesses as the CEO and board member. More recently, he is the founder and president of GAI Capital, a family business consulting firm and the author of a newly released book titled Your Business, Your Family, Your Legacy. It's my great pleasure to welcome George to the show. Thanks for being here, George. Oh, thanks, Mike. It's great to be here. It's it's always a treat to talk about family business issues. uh, So I look forward to uh, our conversation. Should be a great one. George, I'd love to start with a bit of an overview of your background, please, and the Isaac family business and how you found your way into the business. Well, it wasn't too hard to find my way into the business because in this small town in Northwestern Ohio, I grew up on the block with my aunts and uncles and the family business was on the same block. So it was just down the road, down the street, on the sidewalk to see my aunts and uncles and my father in the family business. So it started at a very early, early age and the dinner conversations were typically about family business matters. And my dad was running the business. And so we were talking about business it's a little little scary or weird, but I remember in eighth grade talking about bonus depreciation and investment tax credits and tax planning. So we started at a pretty early age. In latter years, like when I graduated from college uh, in grad school, the plan, so to speak, and the programming was I would come back and join the family business. I felt at the time that wasn't the best move, that we'd better to get some outside experience, Learn as much as I could. I was still in a court, you know, this desire to be as smart as I possibly could with business issues. So I chose a career in management consulting instead of joining the family business, much to the surprise of, I think, a lot of the members of the family, particularly my father. After about 10 years, my father was at an age where he was thinking about partially retiring. And so he, and my father was a great businessman and did a great job running our, our family's businesses, several of which he, he had started. And, you know, we got different businesses going at different times, but he settled on a couple at the end. But he was also kind of an authoritarian leader. So when you have that kind of management style, his, he was brilliant and, and visionary and did a great job. You can imagine the management team wasn't very strong because he was pretty much calling all the shots and had a bunch of yes men. So there was nobody that was really given the opportunity, including a couple of my cousins, really developed the, the management experience that they needed to run the business. So they asked me. I chose not to. And so we suggested to get an um, outside president to run the company. We went through a formal search with a big search firm, and we hired a fellow. And that, after about a year, it was, it was a pretty tough transition. And it was interesting. I had two cousins back in the business. One called and said, this is exactly what we need. He's really creating discipline, and, and it's going to be good for the company. 
The other cousin said, this guy's a total train wreck. He doesn't understand the relationships in the business, the long-lasting relationships, and he's really screwing things up. So that was, and I went back and did my own interviews, and kind of a year later, we decided that he isn't the right fit for our industry and how it works and has worked. And so um, they asked me, you know, to come back and what would it take? And so we put together, you know, a transition plan and went through a lot of details we can talk about later if you're interested. And I, you know, decided to take a leave of absence from my partnership as a partner at Deloitte Consulting. They were kind enough to let me have a leave of absence with the kind of the impression I was going to go down and fix the family business and then come back and be a, a consultant again. And so, I, you know, six months later, they called me and, and I said, no, actually, I'm really still really working hard. I'm really enjoying this. And they asked me if I wanted another six months. I said, no, I, I like running the company. So that's kind of how we did it. And part of it was just to pay respect and appreciation for the prior generation who worked hard and, and sacrificed to provide this business to my Gen 3. And I was just about to ask that. So that's Gen, your Gen 3, are you? Yes, I'm, I'm Gen 3. We now have Gen 4 that's involved in oversight of the business. But it's clearly a multi-generational family business. We've sold one division. We have a remaining division. And so we're looking forward to kind of continuing that on for multiple generations. What sort of industries or product lines is the business in, George? The current business, the remaining business is in real estate development and investments. The prior business that that I was involved with was in metals recycling and, and processing. We sold to the major steel mills and foundries in the country. And so it was a, a large scale, you know, railroad car loads worth of scrap metals being sold to steel mills, foundries, you know, their furnace to make new steel and, and cast iron. Uh, over the years, we were in a, not we, we, my father was in a bunch of businesses from tire recapping to Goodyear tire dealerships to uh, car leasing. He was, you know, there was a real entrepreneurial spirit, but they finally focused on these two remaining businesses that um, that I was involved with. Fantastic. I'm curious now, since that time, you've been involved in a number of public and private companies as both CEO and investor. How did your story evolve and ultimately lead to the family advisory work that you're involved with today? Well, a, a couple a couple things happened. Um, one, I really I do like consulting and working with a variety of different companies and a variety of different issues. So, you know, the I enjoyed being CEO, and that was a and that was a great experience of running some companies and kind of putting the putting the test what I have learned through all my consulting years into actual implementation in our own business. But consulting was always a, you know a treasure for me. And what one of the things I think I'm I'm capable of doing is looking at things from different industries and different functional areas and figuring out how they might apply to other areas. And so I learned a lot by my career. You know beyond. I was in a public company, a senior executive and board member of a public company. We, we bought 25 companies and built a billion-dollar a billion dollar operating business through an industry consolidation. So I had exposure to capital markets and kind of the issues, some of the other issues other than we would have experienced in the family business. And then I went on and did some private equity investing. And I learned you know, different skills and paradigms to look at from a private equity investor. And I realized that some of the things I did in running our family business and what a lot of people are doing today are not best practices when you look at some of the experiences I had in other industries. So I felt kind of uniquely qualified to try to share some thoughts that I learned from outside of the family business community to family businesses. And we can talk about some of those later on. But that's that's kind of why I focused on it. Uh, and the other thing is I have a really strong passion to 
have family businesses survive. As you know, most of them don't make it next generation. And there's some real strong reasons, both from a financial as well as kind of family basis. If it's a fairly good family business, it's your best, best, best option is to keep it alive. And too many of them are not, they're being sold or being, you know, broken up. And I know you've got, you've got some very, oh, I don't know if they're unique, but you've got some great insights on that in your book. So I'm definitely going to follow that thread a little bit later in this conversation. Before we get there, though, I'm curious, do you find that your clients find it beneficial that you can sit on both sides of the table in that you've got your own family business experience as well as this broad consulting and public company experience as well? Does that allow you to empathize and understand family business issues more holistically? Absolutely. I mean, I, I remember the conversations from, even from childhood, what my cousins would say about their father and how he was involved in the business. And you, you get all the family dynamics at times a little colorful. And, and certainly you recognize the difference in perspectives that different family members have about their, you know, their involvement and their parents' involvement in the business, uh, what's important to them and walking the walk and then actually running the family business and kind of being in the middle of the family dynamics in addition to running the business, you know, you get the scars and the, and the experience that I think is invaluable. And so, yeah, I can relate really well. And I, I use that a lot when I work with families and, you know, the experience I get from consulting also adds to that pile. But certainly having walked that walk, I think, puts me in a good position to um, really relate and share stories of what we did and, you know, so on and so forth. Hopefully be a good consultant to them. Speaking of which, in an earlier answer, you mentioned the transition plan you put in place for your own family business when you got involved. And in your book, you outline a nine-step succession planning roadmap. Why is it so sophisticated or what is the suggestion that you offer in the book to follow these nine steps? And what are the other crucial factors that's not just identifying the next leader or the next CEO and away you go? That's, that's an interesting question. I mean, it's a good question. And, and it's, it is more, I think, exhausting than the most, most articles are written on succession planning. There's probably a, a little bit of a natural caution on my part, leaving as a young partner at Deloitte and giving that up to go join the family business. I want to be real certain that this thing was going to work out the way I wanted it to work out, which was, you know, it wasn't just a family picnic. It was uh, running this thing like a business and what the, what the, you know, the authorization levels are, the board, the owners and people's roles and who's going to work there. And so it, it, you know, I really spent a fair amount of time laying out the process before I was willing to sign on to the family business, having grown up on it and seen different situations where it could go multiple different ways. And so the nine steps, there's really, there's really two kind of conceptual parts to it. One is family transition planning, which is, I think, extremely important and unique to family businesses, obviously. And then the other part is business transition planning, which too many family businesses, when they transition, kind of the next generation, the kids, when they take over, they kind of follow their father or mother's footsteps in terms of you know, how they run the business. And it's really those issues of strategy and, and, and direction and, and culture and so on need to be visited regularly and certainly during a transition would be an important time. To go back to the first part, the family transition planning, the, the most important part is really getting the family members aligned, you know, with their goals, what their interests are. And I used to think that, you know, the goal was to get everybody in the family to stay in the family business and, you know, figure out a way to make them live happily ever after. 
that's not my goal anymore. My goal now is to understand what the real needs, interests, desires, concerns, risk of each individual family member and seeing if that if they fit within what the family business is going to be about. So the majority can rule and figure out what they want to do, but you need to deal with the minority issues, minority owners, minority thoughts as well, so that you can satisfy their needs. For example, one of my clients that I worked with, one of the owners had 5% ownership in this relatively large, I mean, not relatively large real estate business. People that were in charge, his cousins, did not want to do distributions. They wanted to keep the capital in the business to continue growing their real estate portfolio. They also had an aversion to debt, which is not ideal for the capital structure of a real estate business. So they basically had no debt, excess cash. They really weren't doing distributions. The one family member that was having concerns, 95% of his net worth was in this family business, and he needed the money to live on. And he's you know, 65 years old, and he's in a pickle. And this is an example of what you don't want to have. He's very unhappy. He's, you know, it's not much he can do about it. He's causing some issues. It's tough to solve. And so had they thought through that and either had a different situation for him in terms of ownership or had a vehicle where they worked out in advance, he could sell his stock at a fair price to diversify his portfolio and have cash flow, that problem could have been solved. So getting back to the family in alignment, it's really important to get all of us that are staying in the business aligned so there's not that kind of problem with with direction and, and not meeting people's goals. If you do that, you know, you're, you're a good part of the way home. The only thing I'd add is that it's something that you need to revisit over time because people's needs literally change over time. As condition situations change, whether it's college or lifestyle and interest or so on. So you need to revisit, are we still aligned? Are we taking care of people's needs? The big trick is being able to satisfy on the whole, you know, the, pe- the people that are involved in the business. So the first couple steps of the nine are really dealing with those things. The third thing is dealing with the, the current generation in terms of what are they going to do and what do they think they're going to do? Are they going to come to the office and kind of stir up the pot and semi try to run the business? Or are they going to go away and play golf every day? Or are they going to sit at home and be miserable because they have nothing to do? They don't have purpose. So kind of working through the purpose in their estate plans and they have plenty of capital to, you know, to live on. And when they pass away, is there liquidity for these, for their estate? Or is that going to come back onto the company? So you really think through that so you don't end up having some you know problems down the road. Then the fourth piece is governance planning, which gets into family councils and boards of directors, but figuring out how you're going to have oversight and, and of the business and the family and to deal with the variety of issues that come up. So that's kind of the quick nutshell on the family transition planning piece. Business transition planning, start with strategic planning. And that's what we did. We, we sat down and... and we came up, for, you know, first we came up with what kind of goals do we want to have in terms of growing the business and in terms of distributions. And we came from a conservative family and we kind of followed Gen 2 where we're not going to do distributions to the owners except for taxes. This is passed through entity. And so, you know, we we're going to keep the capital in the business. And that helped us sort through who was going to be owners or not because of, you know, some people wanted cash flow and, and, and diversification of assets versus just holding this closely held illiquid company. So we put together our strategic plan, how we're going to grow the business. We, you know, did some risk assessment and basically concluded that we, you know, we had a direction. Then we started thinking, what do we need in the way of organization? Because the way we ran the business, the way I ran the business as the leader and the growth goals were much different than 
the prior prior generation. So we end up doing organizational work and you know hiring a bunch of people and moving some people around, moving a few people out you know out the door that didn't really fit anymore. And that covered kind of steps five, six, and seven. Steps eight, eight and nine are looking at future leadership development programs. We didn't really deal with that in my family because we were all we're, you know we were young and we didn't have a next generation behind us. But that's something that we talk about when I work with a lot of families. And the whole thing in terms of communication, how are we going to communicate this change to our management team, to our suppliers, to our customers? There's a lot of people that are quite concerned when the existing leadership is stepping down to see the new guy come in town and you know what's going to happen to them. And so that was a major part of our, our strategy is how we communicate that. So in summary, there are you know several family transition issues and several business transition issues. I think the, the most important to me of the whole thing is just being certain your ownership group is aligned. This, I've seen too often where family dynamics through not necessarily problems within the family, but, but misaligned goals creates all kinds of turmoil that impacts the business, not only in terms of the effectiveness of the management of the business, but also to make it helping make it last. I mean, we end up having the business being sold because you can't take care of all the needs of the various constituents. Speaking of the business being sold, one of the things I most enjoyed in your book was how you explored the pros and cons of selling a family business. And you highlight many of the other implications that a family must consider outside of just the potential financial windfall. Would you mind sharing some of those implications with us and what families need to weigh up when considering a potential transaction? Sure. I think in, in, in kind of tie into the prior you know, topic of succession planning, what's really disappointing is when you see a family business that doesn't have a succession plan that's viable and the best option is to sell the business. And that's a terrible you know, outcome where it could have been alleviated. So that kind of ties back into succession planning. Selling the family business, in my mind, there's two basic components. One is the financial side. And the other, well, let's just say the family or personal side. There are times when you should sell your family business. I don't want to come off of that's always a bad option. So at times, that you know, you'll get a ridiculously high multiple of EBITDA or a higher value than what the company really, really ever be able to make it worth. And so instead of working for free, so to speak, for the next five years, you, you know, you can cash out. So there's some rare opportunities. Or if, if fundamentally the business risk profile of the business or the, you know, the outlook that doesn't look good, then you know you may want to sell your business, but when you, if you do sell your business, the math is not very very appealing. Let's just take a simple example. Hopefully, you can follow my thought process. But let's say your business makes five million dollars in EBITDA, which is basically pre-tax cash flow, and let's say you can sell it for six times EBITDA, then you can sell the business for thirty million, which sounds like a lot of money. It is a lot of money, but then you you know typically. And it varies depending upon the situations and, the, and so on, the basis of your stock. But you probably spend about a third of that goes out in taxes. So now you have $20 million. So you're already down you know, one-third of your value. From $30 million, you're down to $20 million to reinvest. And now you reinvest $20 million, and you were making $5 million a year in pre-tax cash flow. So to put that $20 million to generate $5 million, what do you need? 25% return. Well, I've been in the stock in bond investment business for a while, not business, but personally. And I can tell you, if I get 7.5% perhaps right now in this market, I'd be delighted. So 7.5% you know, leaves you at about a million and a half cash flow as opposed to you know 5 million. So your cash flow is way down, your net worth is way down. So it can be an expensive you know, situation. 
Now, the counter argument is, well, I'm diversified, I'm liquid, and I agree. And hopefully we'll talk a little bit later about my family wealth evaporation trap material, which is kind of unique. And there are ways to deal with the liquidity and lack of diversification without selling your family business. So that's something that maybe we'll get into. The other side is then just the personal side. I mean, there's some other economics like perks. You, know, you get you know, expense accounts, company car, and so on and so forth, in addition to the compensation of the, you know, the pre-tax earnings. So you, you, know, you lose your job quite often. And so all of a sudden, you don't have your place to hang your shingles. You know, a good part of us in the family business world is we say, well, you know, what do you do? Well, I, you know, I'm an owner of XYZ company, or I'm president of this company, or I'm vice president of this company. And so your position in the community can change. All of a sudden, you may not be invited to be on boards because you're no longer running a company. And so you, you're kind of not on the short list. You may, longer, may not be the head of the family, you know, or part of that because the family's not as connected as it used to be because you're not seeing each other every day at work. So they're, and then it kind of gets into like the purpose. And some are fine with you know playing golf every day in a day or fishing, hunting, skiing. If that if that works, that's just fine. But a lot of people, including myself, that doesn't work. And so I need purpose. And part of what I'm doing here is gives me purpose to consult and work with family businesses. So you need to be certain that you have a purpose with the family members. Otherwise, it can you know be a real tough transition on the family side when you sell your family business. George, how many families do you think are actually prepared for that transition in that understanding the financials as you've just laid out in the example, understanding the hit to net worth and the hit to income? Do families really think that through or, or do, does an exit of the family business come with all of this emotional baggage or some form of crisis, perhaps when a patriarch passes or something like that, that it's not really front of mind? Because I, my assumption is that Many families are just sleepwalking into a transaction like that. Yeah, I, th- I think so. I, th- I think you're right. I mean, there's, there's the taxation is a big deal. I mean, you start talking to me when I was in eighth grade about taxes. So I kind of got early sensitivity to the impact of taxes on a lot, on everything. So, but yeah, you think about selling the business for $30 million, everybody thinks, boy, that's great. We're loaded now. And then they don't think about, we will, they'll eventually think about the taxes because, you know, your accountants will work through that with you. But what I don't think they think about is the cash flow difference when you're making 7% or whatever versus your nice cash flow from the business. So it is, it is a little bit of a surprise. Um, and, and it's the, my main contention is that we can get you cash out, even tax-free cash out if you're passed through entity and allow you to diversify your portfolio, have liquidity, not have all your eggs in one basket without selling the family business. And so... There's just a better way to do it than to say I need it for liquidity or you know state tax purposes or I need more money. It, it's there's just smarter ways to, to address that. And I know I think I learned that more from you know outside of the family business world. So we can share stories later about you know I I have not done everything that I would recommend today because I didn't know about it until I kind of learned through experiences else. Well, I think that's why I enjoyed your book so much. It offered such practical insights as to things that you could do and worked examples that were really, really applicable. And I love the mathematics behind it as well, because it just really drives the message home. And you know, the next thing, as you quite rightly mentioned, you, you mentioned the family business wealth evaporation trap, which is another key topic that you talk about. Is this an example of that? in selling the business and having the hit to net worth? Or are you talking about other ways that family wealth evaporates? 
That's certainly one of them. You know, I think there's there's a few factors, but it's so many family businesses. It's, it, there's a wealth evaporating that they don't even realize. It's not measured on the financial statements, and so it's it's you know it's one of those things that if if you don't bring it to people's attention, it gets lost. And and candidly, I didn't, I wasn't aware of it myself. We ran a very, you know, we're a conservative financial family, and I go to these clients, you know. Grandpa didn't like debt, you know, or whatever. And we're a conservative financial family. And I said, well, that's great. I'm a conservative financial guy as well. Uh, and then they say, yeah, we have no debt and we have $30 million in cash on our balance sheet. And I go, oh, that's, that's, you know, that's certainly being conservative. But let me, let me ask you a question. I said, you have $25 million in receivables and $15 million in inventory, $40 million of those assets. You think you could get bank financing for that, a working capital line? Oh, sure, we could. What do you think you'd have to pay for interest? Well, you know, maybe 4%, 3.5%. Okay, so kind of what you're doing inadvertently is you're taking your family's precious equity capital and investing a 3 to 4% recurring asset. If I came in and offered you a deal like that, you'd throw me out of your office. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden, they start thinking about treating the capital with the respect it needs and what's the right approach for capital structure. And when you do that, you have, you know, there, there are ways to get capital out of the business that can easily come back in if, with LLCs. In this, in this particular case, we ended up distributing $20 million out of the business. We left $10 million in, God knows for, for why. We actually distributed 20 of the 30, and then we borrowed 27 and a half, of, as I recall, to finance the working capital. So we were able to move $47 million of this company, $100 million sales company, outside of the business. Wow. And now they have that. To diversify, so it's no longer all captive in one entity at risk of you know potential loss, lawsuits, loss of customers, you know all kinds of problems, black swans that could happen, like like they are right today or back in 2008, or my case, General Motors kind of almost went bankrupt. That was our largest customer, no fault of our own. It would have been a terrible situation. So now all of a sudden you have liquidity, diversity. And in a separate asset protected entity, if it's done right, and you haven't harmed the business one bit. And in fact, if the business needs needs it back, you can lend it back or you can guarantee loans. I mean, there's lots of ways to maneuver around that. So that's just one example. And it's, you know, it's troubling when I go into a company and I, and I ask about their portfolio and they show me their nice stock and bond portfolio and a nice pie chart. And I say, well, what about the family business? Your, your, your stocks are worth $25 million in bonds, but so, well, that's our operator. That's not really our investment entity. And I said, well, suppose we put that in the pie chart. And all of a sudden, it's like, well, the business is worth $100 million. So now we're telling me that 80% of your net worth is tied up in one illiquid concentrated asset class. So we have those kinds of conversations. Another thing, in addition, so there's kind of the excessive risk that they're taking with their family's wealth, the management of their equity capital. So it's not really the ideal capital structure. One thing that I made a mistake on was, we were rapidly growing our business. We grew it um, sixfold over eight years. So we're really happy. We had all these nice pie charts or line charts, graph charts for our board meetings. And it was up and up and up. And But we weren't distributing any of that wealth. So I was proudly producing, here's our return on equity and here's the valuation of our stock. One of my cousins came in and said, that's all fine and dandy, but you know, I'm still eating the same hot dog for lunch every day. Mm. And it's, it's kind of like we have this diamond in the family. It's going up in value, you know, every every year, but it's no benefit. It's just a big diamond. And then when we die, we pay estate taxes and give it to the next generation. So I realized that realization of wealth 
shareholder returns is much different than business returns. And so figuring out how you provide realized shareholder returns is an important step that many, you know, many of us don't, didn't recognize. And I certainly did. And so that was another issue. So those are kind of, you know, a lot of the issues associated with family business wealth that are, you know, are easily remedied if you have the right mindset and done on a conservative basis. And you have some time to over a period of five or six, seven years, you can pretty much accomplish anything, but it requires some rigorous analysis. So you understand the capital needs of your business, also understand the needs of your shareholders, and you end up, you know, being able to solve a lot of problems, hopefully avoid any family conflict as a result of illiquidity and so on. I, I love it. And I think that this is a conversation that should be had far more often in these family business circles. We often hear that families very conservative companies are usually very light on debt, as you suggest. But I don't know if anyone holds up a mirror and reframes it for them to show them the opportunity for them to destroy that wealth if it's all in one basket with a black swan event or, or similar, as you suggest. So I think it's a great point, George. Well, I have a, I, my favorite chart is up this, in this particular case was the $47.5 million that we distributed. I, over a generation, I call it a generation 25 years, if you could get a two and a half percent return on their forty-seven half million, which was kind of like they borrowed the money at you know three percent and something in the bank, and or if you can invest at a meager five and a half percent return, where would you be in twenty-five years? So two and a half percent return versus twenty-five percent or five five point five percent return, three percent differential. Well, in twenty-five years, the forty-seven and a half became eighty-eight million, which sounds pretty good, right? Mm. But the five point five percent return became one hundred eighty-one million. It was. Twice, so they left ninety-three million dollars of wealth was lost in a generation as a result of mismanaging. It was a, it's not the word you'd want to use, but it really was mismanaging. I mean, you're trying to we're all trying to be good stewards and being conservative, but ironically, it's just the opposite in certain situations like this. Fantastic point, and I think a lot of families consider setting up a family office, or maybe have done, and feed the office with distributions from the family business. But if you look at those family businesses, they probably still are financing all of their own working capital or have you know, large amounts of cash sitting on the balance sheet for safety reasons. And the family office could probably be compounding the wealth of the family at a much faster rate if they implemented some of these strategies that you're talking about. Well, some of these businesses are, you know, they're still so risk averse. They'll say, well, you know, that's, that's making our company more risky. And so what happens if we took this $47.5 million in this case and bought U.S. Treasury bonds? a separate LLP. And if you ever need it, we can put it back in. If I really increased your risk profile, I'd say I probably did decrease this. Now I have some of this cash in its own asset protected entity that, you know, you now have two, two buckets of baskets to have your, your wealth in. And so it's a different paradigm, but it's, it's one that, you know, I've so far been able to pretty much win, me, win anybody over to approach it at varying degrees of aggressiveness, but certainly start to whittle away at this and seems to be working pretty well. Do you think that's an emotional issue that people are very conservative about protecting the family business that is multi-generational? And so they're conservative in the way they manage the debt and equity around it. But what you're talking about is diversifying the family's wealth, not necessarily protecting the business, but protecting the family. Do you have some people push back on you and say, well, I don't want to put any debt on the business or I don't want to have working capital loans because... XYZ company has been around 130 years and I don't want to risk it ending because that's my legacy. That's the family story. That's the, as you say, the place where 
you hang your shingle and its reputation around town? Well, I think that's that's true. I think none of us, including myself, I didn't want to be the guy to to lose money in the family business or have it go the wrong direction. You know, there's a fair amount of pressure to be successful, and so that gets into the whole risk profile. You know, you play no play no win or play not to lose. So there's there's a bigger issue that you're actually raising with that. I think I have a good counter argument with, is with the U.S. government bonds. You know, it's like it's not going anywhere. We're not giving it to the kids. They're not going to spoil themselves and buy Ferraris. It's going to be controlled, you know, and, and be able to go back in. It, it, it can be an uphill. It's also it's also the darker side is that if I have a bunch of cash laying around in the business, um, I'll never get in trouble. So it's it's like the warehouse. If I have twice as much warehouse space as I need, I'll you know I'll always have plenty of product around. But you know I, I may not run really efficiently. And so I think that some of this is being protective of yourself so that your problems are can be more camouflaged and you know they slow a little less pressure to uh, perform. And, Different story, different time. Bit of bit of uh, self preservation rather than family preservation there. Yeah, for sure. You've got a great acronym to remember the major headwinds that erode family wealth. The, the acronym is FIST, F I S T. Would you mind sharing that uh, with the audience as well, please? You know, I'm an old consultant, so what do we got to do? We got to come up with the acronyms. I don't know what- a, a two by two matrix or an acronym or some yeah, other charts, model. Bubble charts, we do all those things. Fist it is it is clever. I mean, it, and it comes up with fist. It, the headwinds that perpetuating multi generational wealth. I, I summarize in four areas. One is F is fist for the number of family units that are supported. So you know, your grandpa has two kids, and then those two kids have two kids. So all of a sudden, and we're living longer, so you probably got a couple of generations tied into the family enterprise. So you can go from grandpa with two to having each kid have, you know, his two kids would be three, and then those can go to six. So all of a sudden, you can have, you know, generation two and generation three involved in the business. There are a lot more mouths to feed. So that's, you know, when you think about the wealth per, per capita, that's a huge impact. And, and it kind of, the question I was trying to sort through is, is what does it take to, to perpetuate and maintain family wealth on a real basis? You know, how, how do you do it? Is, is that even feasible? And so this is kind of where my work began. Then the next thing I, as, as you might guess, is inflation. And you notice that inflation is like never like booked anywhere. I mean, no one ever books inflation. You get your, your financial investment statements from your firms, and they'll show you you got a 5% return this year. And you go, well, what about inflation? You know, what's, what, what, are we really, what are we really growing? You know, and so that's kind of a hidden cost. I call it the silent killer. It erodes wealth over time. It's not measured. And, and, and I don't think it's unintentional, particularly in the investment. They don't report that. They don't report taxes. So it's all about after-tax income and real real dollars. So those things are somehow absent from the um, investment world. So that's something that I wanted to measure. Then spending rate is something that is a critical balance. And, and you have a certain set of assets. How much can you spend and not have it deplete? And, and, you know, and you want it to grow you know, for future needs as well. So calculating spending as a percentage of assets under, under your management is an important metric. And that's a good way to plan and forecast future cash flow distributions and help people understand why, you know, distributions are at such a level so that, you know, you're managing your family's wealth. And taxes, of course, is another killer. You know, income, capital gains, estate, gift. Now, even in California, they're coming up with a wealth tax potentially. So, I mean, there's a tremendous amount of wealth consumed on that. So, you, when you do all those things, 
and, it, and I did some analyses in the book, over a course of 10 years, your wealth can go from, you know, whatever it was for grandpa, per, per your real dollars in wealth and, and cash flow distributions to the Gen 3, it drops to 15%. Now, a good part of that is the number of mouths you're feeding. But also, and that was those are with spending rates of I believe three percent. It's in the book, but three percent spending rate, which is a reasonable spending rate, seven percent returns. Inflation was around two and a half or three. I don't recall now, but right around that area. So it was a reasonable assumptions. And you know, the conclusion is, is if you want to maintain your family wealth, you know, you need to really do some very sophisticated estate planning. And you need to have some entrepreneurs, wealth future wealth creators coming down um, to to make that possible. And that was going to be my follow-on question. If families grow faster than businesses is an adage we hear a lot because of that, that family tree or pyramid multiplying as the generations go on. And using your measurement in real terms of wealth per person, is it possible to outrun the family tree? Is it possible to maintain wealth at a reasonable level even though the family grows at what's almost a compound rate as the generations go on. Yeah, I, I think it's pretty tough, Mike. I mean, and I think it's going to get tougher because I think, you know, there's this mentality that fair share taxes um, are somehow not being paid by the wealthy. So there's a desire to increase taxes on them. You know, one of, the, one of the things that is I find concerning is, I mean, it's one thing about taxing the billionaires and people that are having really large amounts of, of wealth, but all these a lot of these small businesses, small medium-sized businesses, which hire what sixty-five percent of the employment in the country, they're passed through entities, so their tax rates are passed on to their individual tax returns. So when you start saying, "I'm not going to tax anybody over four hundred thousand dollars," well, what about these small businesses that are you know making four or five hundred thousand dollars, hiring people, or a million dollars a year? You know, it, it really impacts the business community, and they're not you know that wealthy. It's just. It's, you know, it's a business that's hiring people. So it's, it's a tough situation, but challenge is, is you, is you raise your next generation, right? And, and you try to see what can be done to uh, protect as much as you can. Do you have an example of a family that's done it very well? Does it come down to just having wealth creators in each generation or at least in the second or third generation to really build on the wealth? Yes, I think so. That's, we, in our family, it's, we've been able to you know, we had a, our generation had a good run with increasing the wealth significantly over the prior generation. But, you know, I, I'm not saying that in a braggatory way. I mean, I think my father and that generation had a tougher job. They took something that was, you know, close to almost nothing, made it something, and they took risk and risk that I would have never taken at the time. And we took something that was small and made it bigger. And, and, and you know, I take my hat off to that, that prior generation because they, you know, they, they had a, a tougher tougher pro program than I think we did. Yeah. I always like to say that it's much harder to go from zero to one than it is from one to 10. Yeah, precisely. And um, so I, I take my hat off to them. And I asked my father one time, I said, well, he built a plant on a 30-day on a purchase order that wasn't worth its weight in, go in gold on the paper of it with our major company. And he borrowed, you know, borrowed money, built this plant. He goes, would you have done that? I said, God, no, I never would have done that. It was a single product plant for this customer. And I said, there's no way. Well, how can you take kind of risk like that? He goes, well, son, when you have nothing, you have nothing to lose. <laughs> Obviously paid off. Yeah. Yeah, it did pay off. But. So uh, on that note, I mean, we've just been through this acronym of FIST that is all about wealth erosion in families. But I'm curious, 
how you feel about children inheriting wealth. And if I can ask, do you have a plan for your own children? Yeah, you know, the plan was when they were born, raise them a certain way. And and I I don't mean to be trite about that, but I think it's really important that as they're growing up, I mean, literally when they're youngsters, that they get the kind of value set that's appropriate. And that's, you know, fortunately, I mean, I'm a little older now, our kids, my, my son is 35 and daughter, and they're, you know, they're, they're doing great and I have no concerns about them. So, but, you know, we're raised with a certain value set. And same thing when I was raised, my father grew up really poor and my aunts and uncles. So I would hear these stories about how tough things were. And I grew up kind of middle class, which was, you know, but I didn't, so I didn't grow up poor, but hearing all those stories gave me this sense of empathy and understanding and appreciation for how much luckier I was. And that's carried with me through today. And I think we had, I had tough jobs and I was I had the worst job in the General Motors foundry than there was. I mean, I think my father must've gone over to the person age and said, what's the worst job you have here? I want my son to work here this summer. I was, I was taking apart, I wore an asbestos bib and, and, and I was taking apart hot red cast molds with a red hot iron iron poured inside of it with my expenses bib and the job was so bad that I had to join a union but I worked a half an hour and then I got a half an hour off every every hour wow. <laughs> which I kind of liked because I was young and I was walking around the plant and so on I got to learn more and see stuff yeah uh, but but yeah so it was hard work and we lived very moderately growing up and you know just we're both in, in the YPO and young presidents organization and and People who have means, that's one of their probably biggest concerns is how do you not mess up the next generation? I think, I think it's very doable, but it's, you know, you're not going to give your kid a BMW and a Platinum American Express car when he goes off to college, in my mind. Yeah. George, beyond your own excellent book, which I've really thoroughly enjoyed pulling apart, are there any other great books or resources that you would suggest the audience looks into if they want to explore this topic further? Well, I have one that's tangential to this. So, so I, I like books that, the one thing I liked about my book was that it was, it was concise and it wasn't 400 pages. Yep. That's what I liked about it too. Thank you. <laughs> and so um, there's a book that really hit me recently, about a year ago, by a friend of mine, Bob Chapman. It's called Everybody Matters. And he's on a mission to change the way the world treats people and that are in le- leadership, the way leaders treat their people. And he's, he's, he really talks about how you should be managing, how you should be leading today versus the way we were trained. I mean, a lot of people were trained that, you know, people, systems, equipment, they're just, you know, you just kind of optimize them. And if it's people or people's lives. And, and one of the things that, uh, that, I, that I did a long time ago was I ordered business cards for our truck drivers and office people because I went to a YPO seminar and this guy said, this is a neat thing to do. And I thought, sounds like a good idea. So for my truck drivers that were going out to industrial plants, they have customer service rep because they were our first line of contact with our with our supply customers. Mm-hmm. And so you know, I bought a box of 500 or 250 cards, give it to them. Now, what do these guys do with the cards? They gave them to your wife, to your cousins, probably you know half a dozen of their customers, and then they had the box in their drawer. But you know, I thought this made sense. I mean, and I did think. And so then one of our long term drivers passed away, and I went to the funeral to see the wife. And I walk into the funeral parlor, and you got a big board with pictures, you know, all around it. And right in the middle of the board, with, you know, kind of a pin stuck in it, was his business card. Wow. I'm like, oh, my God. You know, how, 
my first reaction was, was how stupid was I to not have done this like 20 years ago? I mean, it was just, mm -hmm. I went to the wife and expressed my condolences and she said, Oh, George, you can't imagine how much that meant when he got that business card. It's, you know, it's those kinds of things here. Just you know, the little things. Yeah. Little things, spending time with people, realizing that we spend, we have more time with them at work than, they, than their spouses and kids have with them. And, you know, if they don't have a pleasant experience at work, they're probably not going to be pleasant at night if they're in a family and they're stressed out. And so this book, I, I really like a lot. I think it's got a lot of stories in it, but he's, he's on a mission and I'm more than glad to recommend that book. That's fantastic. So once again, it's Everybody Matters by Bob Chapman. Thank you. I'll find that and link that in the show notes as well. It's time now for our final question, George, and it's one that I ask every guest. Imagine that you're writing a letter to your children. What is one lesson or idea that you don't think many parents would mention, but you consider important to understand? Well, there's a couple of things. Um, one is, is money is not everything by any means. And, and to think about what you want your legacy to be. We had a session where we're thinking about what do you want written in your obituary? What do you want people to say about you? And when you do that, and, I, and then the next question is, are you doing the things that align yourself to have your obituary written the way you want it to be written? And that can be pretty revealing, you know? And so trying to, to get them focused on who they are and, and what, how they're going to leave the world and what their contribution is going to be. That's kind of one thing. And a, the other thing is you imagine is empathy, having empathy, understanding people. And, and, you know, they've been blessed with, you know, fortunate life. But not everybody is in such a great situation, particularly around the world. And so have an empathy. And the last thing that I, it's kind of a personal bias, is I, I like to encourage curiosity. I think curiosity is probably one of the more important traits you can have because you learn so much by generally being curious and it makes you a better listener too if you're curious you're trying to understand. So those are kind of some things that just come to mind. I don't know if that's what you're looking for. It's fantastic. We're not looking for anything but the lessons you would pass on. And, and I can take a lot from that, George. So. Thank you for sharing them with us. And thank you for this wonderful conversation. I think you bring uh, new depth and new insights with your book and also the perspective which you see family business with. So uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed this. Thank you again for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Was, was, I've enjoyed the conversation as well. Thanks, George. To find more episodes of the Business of Family podcast, go to businessoffamily.net. You can also sign up for my email list at newsletter.mikeboyd.com.au. After you sign up, you'll receive immediate access to all past issues and then one email per week. You can also follow me on Twitter using at Mike Boyd. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review on iTunes, which will help more people discover the business of family. Thank you so much for listening. Mm -hmm.